What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Landon Castle is a professional NASCAR driver and Bitcoin and crypto enthusiast. In this conversation, we discuss what it is like growing up to race professionally, how he broke into NASCAR, what actually goes on inside the car during a race, how Landon got into crypto, and what he is currently doing in the space today. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, motherfucking mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to CoinMine.com. You buy a CoinMine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it. It shows up at your doorstep. You pull it out of the box. You plug it in. Connect to your Wi-Fi. Five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide. And then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. As many of you know, crypto investors store their digital assets on exchanges or in cold storage for long-term safekeeping. However, this strategy doesn't help them grow their investment holdings or build overall wealth. With the new BlockFi interest account, users can now securely store their Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. 6% is an absurdly high rate. It's the best rate in the industry. I highly suggest you go check out BlockFi.com POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com POMP to sign up and start earning crypto today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I'm sitting here with uh, Landon. We are in Las Vegas uh, for a few conferences, but I wanted to sit down real quick and uh, and talk. Landon and I have actually known each other for a while now, um, and I think that uh, the secret's kind of out that you're into uh, crypto, <laughs> Bitcoin, etc. but uh, I figured we'd sit down and, and actually talk about it. So Was it a secret? Is there ever a secret? I, well, listen. For that, some people, it might be a You're secret. a professional athlete, so uh, I, I don't know if... Um, Secrets are allowed in professional yeah. sports. <laughs> I don't think it has to be a secret. I, if there's anybody out there that's keeping it a secret that you're in crypto, if you're an athlete, I don't, I don't think you need to uh, come on out of the closet. To, to hide it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to be hidden. All right, what, let, let's start kind of early, early on, right? So pretty much everyone in racing seems to start when they're like a little kid, uh, and there's this whole um, kind of... Uh, series of leagues and all the stuff that you kind of work your way up to uh, NASCAR or other racing leagues. Did you do that and kind of where did you grow up and and what was your path into all this? Yeah, I mean, there's really no definitive path to NASCAR. It's not like the NFL or NBA where it's it's pretty obvious that you start out in a peewee football or basketball Mm -hmm. and play in high school and college. Um, In motorsports, you can there's a lot of different forms of motorsports that you can start out in and it can take you to a lot of different places i mean there's mm-hmm. drivers that might start out thinking they're going to go indy car racing and end up going nascar racing mm-hmm. or vice versa um i'm and for those that don't know just separate out at, at kind of the professional level there's yep. indy car which is more open, open wheel type wheel, racing yep. um indy 500 yep nascar is stock car racing cars with fenders um, Daytona 500. Yep. Um, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson. Got um, it. Landon so, Castle. Landon Castle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm from Iowa. I'm from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and uh, dirt racing is a huge thing in Iowa. But I didn't actually grow up dirt racing because um, 
I raced in go-karts, which is pretty typical uh, for kids between the ages of four and 12. Um, wow. And I had really raced a lot in go-karts um, by the time I was 12 years old, and I was kind of ready to get into full-size cars. And, and my dad, At 12? Yeah, my, <laughs> my dad didn't want to get, you know, stuck um, racing go-karts for too long. Um, and there, the dirt tracks in Iowa wouldn't allow me to race until I was 16. So uh, there's one asphalt track in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, my hometown, called Hawkeye Down Speedway. And um, they allowed me to race um, when I was 12 to 14 years old in their full-size cars. So that's wow. how I started racing on asphalt and on pavement, um, even though I was kind of heading down a dirt racing path. Um, and from there, um, there was a, a touring series in full-bodied cars that looked similar to a NASCAR-type race car mm -hmm. uh, that was traveling the country, and they allowed 14-year-old drivers. So when I was 14, I started traveling the country racing in what was called the ASA Late Model Series. Okay, so <laughs> at 12 years old, uh, I couldn't even reach the foot pedals, I don't yeah. think. <laughs> like, like, what is it like being 12 and, you know, your dad saying to you, hey, you're going to get in a real car, yeah. you're going to drive on the pavement, and I'm assuming you're competing against, like, adults, older yeah. teenagers or adults. Mm -hmm. How fast are these things going? Uh, the the first full-size car that I drove was a um, uh, what's called an IMCA Modified, so it was an open-wheel car. It kind of it doesn't look like an Indy car, but but to someone that doesn't know anything about racing, you might think it's closer to an Indy car mm -hmm. than it is a stock car. But uh, the the front suspension and the the frame itself is like an old uh, Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. um, it just doesn't have a body on it. It just doesn't have fenders, and it had about 400 horsepower and weighed 2,500 pounds. And um, I was 12, and I weighed about 100 pounds, <laughs> and uh, I was racing against adults. Yeah, and, and it was um, um, it was quite an experience. It's you know at that age you make a lot of mistakes, and um, the mistakes have bigger penalties than than when you're racing a go kart. Mm -hmm. And my dad, you really had a policy from the time I started racing that he would support the best you know in the ways that he could support. Um, but I had to fix whatever I crashed. So mm -hmm. uh, growing up, starting in those modifieds, racing in late models, now you have a car that has fenders on it. It's a little bit easier to lean into people, maybe crash someone, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's on accident or on purpose. Um, my dad would pay for it, but I had to, to physically fix it myself. Very cool. So, so that kind of taught me uh, from a young age how to, how to take care of my equipment. Yeah, and, and probably uh, I don't want to crash because I don't want to fix it type attitude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was one time uh, that I that I had an incident with another driver that was uh, pretty intentional on my part um, in retaliation, and uh, and I caused some damage to my car. And I was 16, and my dad made me pay for it. And um, that was we went one six. I didn't have any money, so it was like <laughs> a couple thousand dollars, and um, I had to pretty much use my winnings that I had been earning. Um, to pay for the wrecked car. So I learned my lesson. Yeah. And, and so at 12 to 14, how fast do those cars go? Uh, about at the track that I was racing on, about 100, 110 miles an hour. You, at 12 years old, you're yeah. going 110 miles an hour? Yeah, yeah. mid-corner speeds, probably 60 miles an hour. Um, I mean, you're talking about, like I said, 400 horsepower. You, you're you know full throttle down the straightaways. You're driving it into the corner. You have to lift. You have to use a lot of brake pressure. Um, you, know, you have to control the car from s sliding and spinning out, and you have to try to maneuver your way around other other cars. It's not just pushing the gas down and, and being flat out uh, yeah. the whole track. I can't imagine going 110. <laughs> Driving uh, a stick shift <laughs> with a clutch and, and everything. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, yep. All right. And then the NASCAR uh, stock cars that mm -hmm. uh, you drive today, um, those go like, what, 220? Uh, the, I have gone 220 in a, in a NASCAR race car. Um, it's a, at this point in NASCAR, it really depends on the aero package that NASCAR okay. and the, the rules limitations that we have. The fastest I've gone is at Michigan International Speedway. I've gone over 220 miles an hour when we had 900 horsepower and, and small spoilers, so the cars didn't have a lot of drag. And I mean, that's just that's just you're just carrying a lot of speed, and yep. it's um, for a 3,000 pound car. Um, pretty <laughs> that's pretty fast. It's hard on the tires. It's hard on equipment to go that fast. Right now, our cars go about 200 miles an hour. We okay. race this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway. Our cars will go about 200 miles an hour. And, um, I mean, our mid-corner speeds at Texas will be 175, 180 miles an hour. 
Wow. So yep. on the straightaways, you'll hit on average, let's say about 200 miles an hour. Yep. But into those corners and turns, it's really not that big of a difference. I mean, 20 miles an hour yep. is 20 miles an hour, but it's not yep. like you're going from 200 and breaking down to yep. 150. Particularly at Texas this weekend, that's because of our aero package. Uh, we have a really big spoiler. Our cars make a lot of downforce. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we have fresh new tires on the car, uh, the weather's going to be cool this weekend. Uh, one end of the racetrack, turn three and four, has a lot of banking to it, and we can run wide open through that corner without lifting. So mm-hmm. you're talking about, you know, at the end of tur- at the end of the back stretch, we're you know almost 190, almost 200 miles an hour, and you're not lifting. So um, mid corner speeds are pretty high. You're, wow, you're pulling two or three Gs through the T- corner. G- g- going. Uh... 200 miles an hour is one thing. Going 200 miles an hour through a turn is yeah. crazy. <laughs> it's not that bad. You know, our cars are uh, our cars are built to go that fast, so um, they handle fairly well. Um, at times they don't, you know, and that's mm-hmm. all relative to your competitors. But, um, you know, they're supposed to go that fast. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's harder to drive them at 140 miles an hour because they're not making downforce. They're not making grip um, at 200 miles an hour. That's how fast they want to go. Uh, the real problem is when they have to stop all of a sudden. Yep. Uh, that's usually when bad things happen. For sure. And, and so let's go back to you. So you're like 16, right? Mm-hmm. 14, 16, you start touring. Uh, you're still in school, obviously. So you're like, have kind of two lives, yep. it almost feels yep. like. And I'm assuming most kids at school are, think it's pretty cool that, you know, you're driving 100 miles an hour on yeah. the weekends. Um, well, how do you get from that to NASCAR? Like, like, what does that path look like once you kind of realize, hey, I want to go do this professionally? Um, what, what does that look like? So fortunately for me, during that time period and during that age, um, the, the path that we were racing and the touring series that we were racing was um, was a really good path to get to NASCAR. Mm-hmm. The teams that had that were flush with money, the, the manufacturers that had a lot of money to spend on driver development, on young driver development, um, they were looking at asphalt late model racers, which is what I was doing as the, the next drivers. Mm-hmm. There's been, like I said, the where I mentioned earlier, the multiple different paths. You have dirt racers and sprint car drivers, people that race um, in in sports cars and road courses. Um, they can all kind of end up in the same place. But that was a time period where the most two most prevalent um, types of drivers were coming from um, open wheel midgets and sprint cars on mm-hmm. dirt and and late models, asphalt late models. So. Um, by the time I was 16 years old, well, by the time I was 15, 16 years old, I had been scouted by an agent. Mm-hmm. Um, I had wow. been signed to an agency and I was racing 60, 70 times a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, I signed a contract. I actually did a sort of an audition. It was kind of like a gong show audition, uh, with, with Chevrolet with, um, 16 other drivers and, um, they all put us in race cars and we showed our stuff in front of each other for, for and like went um, out and three raced. different tests. We didn't race, but it was a test. So you drove okay. by yourself on the track. You had to race, you had to drive the car for a certain period of time. They mm-hmm. took a lot of notes. They, they looked at your data. The car was outfitted with telemetry. Mm-hmm. So they looked at your driving style. They listened to your feedback. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, there are some pretty impressive drivers that were in that test. Mm-hmm. Joey Logano, who's a NASCAR champion, was in that test. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually was the, the the number one ranked driver that came out of that test and had a contract with Joe Gibbs Racing wow. uh, from there. And that was a Chevy team at the time. Um, I was the number two ranked driver out of that test, and I got a contract at, um, with Hendrick Motorsports mm-hmm. um, out of that test. Ryan Hunter Ray, Indy 500 champion, was in that mm-hmm. test. Mm-hmm. So there were some big names back then. And this was mm-hmm. over. This is 12, 13 years ago. So. Yep. Um, but like I said, I got a contract with Hendrick Motorsports, uh, became a test driver for Hendrick, tested Jimmy Johnson's cars, Jeff mm-hmm. Gordon's cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how old are you when this is going on? I was 17. So you're 17 yep. and still in school, but yep. also being a test driver for these guys, you've got to be like, these dudes are legends. So I actually finished, I was, I'm young for my grade. I was, I'm, I graduated high school when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And um, so this all was kind of happening in my senior, going into my senior year of mm-hmm. high school. And I had enough credits that I um, was able to finish high school uh, in my, after my first semester. And senior year. Senior year. I did the same thing. Yep. And so I moved to North Carolina with my grandma. Um, and her and I lived together for the first three or four years um, <laughs> of me racing professionally. And so uh, the the timing all worked out where my contract with Hendrick came at the exact same time that I was finishing high school. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And, and so 
you you know go from literally in the cafeteria at high school to yeah. all of a sudden now you're test driving Jeff Gordon's cars uh, for Hendrick Motorsports. Yeah. Like, what are you doing on a day to day basis? And are you kind of like starstruck at the time, or are you like, hey, I'm try- I'm here to kind of you know get into um, yeah. these NASCAR races and start winning races? I was pretty starstruck at the time. I mean, my first I can imagine one of my first jobs at Hendrick uh, was to drive. Uh, Jeff Gordon's Daytona 500 primary car for 2007 uh, at a straight line test. So we used to go to proving grounds uh, where there was they had like runways basically with mm-hmm. with several miles of uh, straight lines, and you would take the car and you drive it in a straight line as fast as it would go, and they would collect aero di- aero data, and that's how they would um, build their aero maps for their simulation models. So. Um, wow. One of my first jobs was to drive his primary car for the upcoming Daytona 500. Uh-huh. And uh, now, the, he, <laughs> in those large teams, uh, a driver has different cars for different races, or are they taking one car and for each race they're actually changing the, uh, the aerodynamics and the different components of it, but it's the same car and kind of chassis and it just changes per race? Uh, it's At, at that time, um, it was different cars for different races. Wow. Uh, and it's still that way now. NASCAR has, the, the rules have kind of adapted to where NASCAR has, NASCAR has really tried to make it to where you can run the same car at um, as many times as possible, but ultimately there's there's no spending cap and there's no limit on the car. There's no VIN number, right? That mm-hmm. that NASCAR tracks. There's no limit on how many times you can run a car. And the biggest teams that have the biggest budgets, what they're really doing is is building um, cars and and when I say cars chassis and bodies right mm-hmm. so you have the chassis which is sort of the mechanical side of it and then the body which is the aero side of it mm-hmm. um those cars are unique to pretty much each racetrack mm-hmm. so they might have a chassis configuration with an aero configuration that works at five or six different tracks mm-hmm. they have a chassis configuration and an aero configuration that works at two or three other tracks that are similar mm-hmm. to, to each other um, they they probably have anywhere from nine to ten different iterations over the 38 race schedule um, that we have. So um, a lot of what that testing that I did was developing the um, the different aero maps and uh, the simulation models yep. for them to, to research those car to build those cars. Uh, I mean, the biggest race teams are their manufacturing companies. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a it's a huge <laughs> there's a huge facility to build research and build these cars. So I want to talk a little bit about um, and you've been kind enough to kind of give me the crash course on racing yeah. really comes down to money. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and money meaning um, the team structures are uh, very unique in that, unlike other sports, as you mentioned, there's no spending caps. There's no kind of like salary cap right. type uh, requirement. There's no driver's union. Yeah. 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 And, and yep. so um, help me understand that there's like kind of large cap teams, I'll call them, or, or large teams, yep. and there's a the smaller, uh, more budget type teams. Um, on the large team side, most of these are car manufacturers or have some relationship with a car manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how that manufacturing relationship works, and then how does that trickle down into the the hardware or, or the actual yep. um, you know car they can put on the track and, and the advantages that brings by them having access to that capital. Yeah, so so that's a that's one of my f- most exciting things to talk about right now in NASCAR, and the the. The initial conversation paints a little bit of a bleak picture of how right. our sport works, and then the the um, the light at the end of the tunnel is where the sport is headed. So I'll right. walk you through that. Right now, you have the biggest teams right now, like Hendrick Motorsports, um, Joe Gibbs Racing, um, RCR, Stuart Haas, and those teams are supported by the big auto manufacturers, mm-hmm. Toyota, Ford, Chevrolet. Now, those teams also have the biggest sponsorships. They're mm-hmm. the most well-funded. They have the best talent, the best leadership, the best mm-hmm. engineering, the best drivers. Mm-hmm. And NASCAR has a rule book that we have to abide by when we build our race cars. But ultimately, even though those rule books have, the rule book has really tight tolerances, mm-hmm. we're still responsible for building and manufacturing and designing our cars to mm-hmm. fit those tolerances. So... Each team, even multiple different Chevy teams, right? The car that I drive is a Chevy, and the car that Hendrick Motorsports is building is a Chevy. Um, each team is responsible for their own manufacturing process, mm-hmm. and they're responsible for their own proprietary components. So right now, the biggest teams are able to take the support that they get from the manufacturers, which is money, 
Mm -hmm. um, engineering support. You know, you have a manufacturer like Toyota. Um, they write a check to the teams, but they also have their own engineering facilities where they mm -hmm. provide wind tunnel testing and mm -hmm. um, chassis engineering and all and, and research and development support. Those those teams are building race cars from scratch. They're building chassis from scratch. We don't buy them from anywhere. Mm -hmm. they're, they're building them from scratch. They're building the bodies. They're taking the cars to the wind tunnel. They're they're R and D in those bodies. They're they're honing them in. Even if it's to the thousands of an inch, they're building. They have engineering teams um, that are building simulation. Mm -hmm. uh, so these cars are. Um, uh, I mean, it's machine learning is a big thing that yep. in for for the big manufacturers because well, it feels like there's a lot of data that goes into this, right? Like yep. it, it almost feels like it's an iterative process, very similar to like software development, yep. where you said, all right, we have uh, kind of our first guess. So we're going to put that into yep. the chassis and, and, and they're constantly reiterating it. They're constantly yeah. relearning and then going back to the manufacturing plant, which they own or they, they develop mm -hmm. and, and remanufacturing new parts and pieces. So those are the teams that are having the most success. The challenge for the smaller teams in the sport right now are that it, it is, it is so, um, it's so hard to catch up with that, especially when those big teams are subsidized by the auto manufacturers because those auto manufacturers are not subsidizing the smaller teams like they are the big teams. So if you're a small team coming into the sport, it's actually more cost effective for you to just go to one of those big teams and pay them a licensing fee mm -hmm. to use their technology. Right? Got it. So the big team takes the resources from the auto manufacturer plus whatever yep. else they have and sponsorships, et cetera. They're able to iterate faster. They, yep. you know, in theory, create a competitive advantage, better technology, right. et cetera, which is okay. Right. Though yep. so it's a competition sport. We want to create a competitive advantage. Yep. The, the, the flaw in that is that they're able, they're taking that competitive advantage and they're able to sort of suppress their competition by selling whatever it is, however much they want of their technology back to their competition. Got it. Right. So then they take that, let's say that they've made a car that goes um, at a certain track 215 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. They could technically sell to a, a competing team technology that makes the car go 205 miles an hour. Right. Right. And that competing team may or may not understand that they're buying kind of inferior technology or configuration. Um, and the team that is the larger team that's been subsidized and has the capital, they're kind of making that decision. It sounds like there's not that much transparency into this, et cetera. Is that accurate? Um, well, I mean, there's, there's, it, it depends on the individual relationships with the, with the larger teams and the smaller teams. I mean, there's been some, there's plenty of cases I would imagine where there isn't much transparency and the bigger team is is charging the smaller team a lot of money and the smaller team may or may not know if they're getting the most updated parts or the most updated technology. Or let's just say, instead of making assumptions, let's just say in the most, in the most authentic way, the big team that has 600 employees and, and you know, spends $30 million per car that they field um, is sharing all of their information with the smaller team that's paying for this information. Well, that smaller team with lesser employees, even with all that information, still lacks the manufacturing capabilities mm -hmm. and and the manpower to keep up with the iterations that the big team mm -hmm. has or, or is capable of, mm -hmm. right? And then it also, um, they also, those big teams have leverage over those small teams mm -hmm. to control the price of that licensing fee. Mm -hmm. it, it's called a technical alliance in our mm -hmm. business. So Technical alliance? Yep, technical okay. alliance. So. The big teams, you know, if the small team, I, let's just, I mean, you, you could game theory this, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not making an assumption, but let's just game theory it. If a big team is selling a technical alliance to a small team and the small team ends up outrunning the big team, what are they going to do? They're going to jack up the price of their technical yep. alliance, right? <laughs> yep. so, so it's, um, and the same goes with the engine business. The engine mm -hmm. business is the same way. The big teams, Hendrick Motorsports, um, I mean, they, they own the engine business, so they own their engine business and they sell, uh, they lease the engines to the two smaller teams. So um, there's a lot of incentive for Hendrick Motorsports on the engine side of things to make sure that first of all, they're getting the best engines that they can get. Mm -hmm. um, and then their customers, they obviously need to build a quality product to their customers, but um, I mean, they, they control the price of, they, they control the price of their own customers cost to go racing mm -hmm. through um, through their engine leases. So um, that's the kind of interesting dynamic in the sport that makes it challenging to for, for upward mobility in NASCAR or for a team owner 
the the light at the end of the tunnel is that NASCAR is 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 taking a serious move at at changing that model. And, and where do they want to move to? Like, what does they, that that new model look like? You think NASCAR is really is um, they're not just looking at they're at, they're they're making moves, and in two thousand and twenty one, we're going to be racing with a single source manufactured race car. So, oh, interesting. So, so everyone will use the same manufactured car and for so you take all the away parts some- and yeah, for all the all the cars, parts and pieces. It'll be um, it'll be sourced from or, or each piece that we have to buy will be sourced from the same place. Got it. And can you make uh, changes or uh, adaptations or enhancements to those parts once you get them, or will it be almost the identical car for everyone? In right now, the. Sp- spirit of the project is that it will all be identical right mm-hmm. so um our our sport is competitive and we're already tuned up to with manufacturing plants and we're already pretty savvy when it comes to looking at a part and mm-hmm. saying how can we improve this mm-hmm. so um i can promise you that teams are going to look at parts <laughs> that they're bu- that they're forced to buy right yeah. that we have to put on the car mm-hmm. and they're going to figure out a way to make it better within the rules the rules right mm-hmm. So I would say that NASCAR is still has a decision to make on how they're going to police that and how they're going to make sure that parts haven't been manipulated mm-hmm. or compromised. Um, and, you know, there will, I would imagine there'll be big penalties that come with that. Um, NASCAR is probably going to be putting some sort of long, long-term freeze on the car so that the car can hold its value, mm-hmm. right? So that you don't buy a car and race with it, and then six months later, there's all of a sudden a new car that we have to buy. Yep. And then they're also going to put a limit on how many cars you can own. So you can't just buy 38 cars for all 38 races. Got um, it. You might have to buy seven cars and mm-hmm. figure out a way to make it through the whole season with seven cars. Make it work. Got it. And, and um, this is very similar. So uh, I don't think I've ever told you this before, but uh, I have someone that um, I know, a gentleman, uh, Lucas Degrassi, who uh, used to be a Formula yeah, One racer and, uh, and then um, was part of and, and now races in Formula E. So it's yep. open wheel racing for electric vehicles. Right? Yeah. And uh, if I remember correctly, he had told me that Formula E, everyone uses the exact same car. Right. right? And so it's this idea that um, the uh, advantage is not in the equipment. Mm-hmm. It's in what who's behind the wheel. Right. right? And, and it makes it more competitive and therefore it actually makes it And not it more just who's behind the wheel, but, but who it, – because it's not all about the driver. Mm-hmm. Even if you're in the same – even if everybody has the same car, the same hardware, um, you still have mm-hmm. a race strategist. You still have – um, general managers, you still have pit crews, right? So, um, like in in Formula E, he, they have strategists, and, and it's about your communication with your team and how well you can set the car up and how well the driver can give feedback and 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 build a car that's balanced for the race. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know one of the one of the the questions that NASCAR has to answer to their manufacturers are where are you going to let the manufacturers compete, right? If you're going to standardize every part and piece on the car, um, you know, there's still a huge marketing incentive for Toyota to be the title sponsor of a race mm-hmm. team because there's 70 million race fans and 5 million viewers on TV every week. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, do you want to develop some technology in our sport? And if you do, where do you want to develop that technology, yep. right? So, like, in Formula E, um, the to my understanding, the cars are standardized, like you said, but the manufacturers have some freedom to compete with each other in the drivetrain technology, right? Got it. Formula E, electric, you know, they're 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 there's it's pretty reasonable for them to think, hey, let's come in and, and use this motorsports platform as a way to help develop our our EV for um, sure technology. Sp- speaking of that, um, will NASCAR ever go electric? You think? What's kind of the oh sure? The, I think general so. yeah, I, I could see that. I mean. In right now, the the first phase of this sort of single source manufactured model is is the cars and the bodies and the chassis and and actually they're they're looking at some sort of spending cap, some sort of way to um, keep the teams from just running away with their funding. Uh, but the second phase of it is going to be the engine and the powertrain, um, and and they're looking at some sort of hybrid regenerative energy mm-hmm. to use for. Um, and the conversations have been anything from a push to pass button like you've seen in IndyCar racing to letting the cars run off of their electric power source under cautions so that maybe 
it's like uh, a timeout during a basketball game mm-hmm. where the stadium gets quiet and you can talk again and mm-hmm. you can you know check your phone. Um, it's just a lot of creative ideas, but ultimately. Um, I think NASCAR is, is very well aware of where the auto industry is going and where mm-hmm. they could end up. But it's hard to shake the idea of a V8, <laughs> you know. I was going to say, it feels like that's like NASCAR is like the ultimate American sport, right? Yeah. And uh, and having electric vehicles, something about it doesn't feel right. Right, And, and I'm not sure. even a, a huge race fan, but uh, but obviously that's where the industry right. goes. And... But see, NASCAR has three major national series. We have two series that race cars that are actually pretty similar to each other, the Cup Series and the Xfinity Series. And the Xfinity Series is kind of like the feeder series to the Cup Series, but ultimately the cars are kind of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a truck series, right? So it makes sense to have a truck series. You know, you're mm-hmm. selling trucks on one end, you're selling cars on the other end. I, and this is just me talking, I'm not speaking for the sport, but maybe the Xfinity Series someday could be the EV Series, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that technology could be there and the Cup Series could be what it is. Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at crypto.com. Go help your boy out, tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit crypto.com. Pomp's got you, always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry, your boy Pomp's gotcha. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you gotta do is go to coinmine.com, you buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right, you purchase it, it shows up at your doorstep, you pull it out of the box, you plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi, five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just your update in your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. What's the difference in the spending of the large cap teams versus the small cap teams? Are we talking about, you know, half a billion dollars to like $5 million? Or is it, you know, much closer like $20 million to $10 million? Uh, you have cars at the very highest end probably spending a million per race on their program. Okay, and there's 38 races? 38 races, yep. And then on the very low end, you probably have cars that spend a hundred thousand a race. Oh, okay, so yeah. so ten x though. Yeah, yeah, pr- yeah. Pr- pretty uh, pretty big uh, difference there. Yeah. And um, of the team sizes, you said that some of the larger guys might have six hundred employees. Yeah. What does that look like on the lower end? So the the largest teams that those those that are spending a million a race probably are, are of that size. Um, and a team that's spending a hundred thousand a race probably has anywhere from ten to twenty five employees. 10 Got to 20. it. Okay, so so again, pretty material mm-hmm. yep. Uh, yep. Uh, difference there. Um, all right, so you've been doing racing for a while, yep. and uh, you're into crypto. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how how did you first hear about Bitcoin, uh, crypto, etc.? Yeah. Um, and then what'd you do once you heard about it? Uh, I heard I first heard about it in 2013. And uh, really through racing, because in 2014, a good friend of mine, Josh Wise, who hopefully some listeners on this podcast know who Josh Wise is, because he drove the Dogecoin-sponsored car a ah. couple times in, in NASCAR. And the, uh, the Dogecoin community on Reddit came together and crowdfunded sponsorship for a race car. And they even, they even, believe it or not, this is crazy as is, and this is why the, inter- the internet is undefeated, um, they crowdfunded the fan vote to get him into the all-star race. Really? And they beat Danica Patrick to, to get Josh into the all-star race. Josh is a very close friend of mine, and um, I, was, I was, you know, really sh- shotgun with him through this whole process. Um, 
Because how much did they have to uh, crowdfund to get the sponsorship? I think they raised six figures um, over the course of all of the stuff that they did. I think mm-hmm. they spent they Doge, the community came up with a hundred thousand dollars at least. Wow. Um, yeah. So and it was a, it was a huge impact on his team at the time. I mean, his team had no sponsorship and they they filled some major gaps in the schedule, mm-hmm. and it was really good for Josh. You know, yeah, yeah. and so. Uh, I was really, I loved it. I was super into it, and and um, that was my first intro to cryptocurrency. <laughs> and I've never had anyone come on and say yeah. the first time I introduced was through Dogecoin. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, man, it's that I, honestly that that that's just proves to you the uh, uh, the power of energy and positive energy yeah. and, and community, which is is the maybe one of the core tenets of uh of crypto right now one of the foundations that's that, that keeps it together uh but for me i um you know once i once i understood you know my first impression of bitcoin was this this you know online money right and and i didn't really get it but once i understood the financial sovereignty side of it i was like pretty interesting yeah uh, you know i was pretty interested in it and um I, you know, really early on, I looked at day trading and and the markets and I saw it as buying stocks or selling stocks. And and fortunately, I think I was smart enough to say that's not what I'm going to do and that's not what I can do. And and I could probably teach myself or learn, but that uh, I don't even want to take the time to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I bought and held and I'm I'm a pretty persistent um, hodler of Bitcoin. Mm And um, I, uh, but where I got myself involved more actively was in the mining side of things. So, yep. um, so we've talked about it a lot. I've, I've, I've mined Bitcoin and Litecoin and um, I've done it for a little while now. And um, it's, it's, it's paid off well at times and, and they've, uh, it's, it's been a struggle at other times. And it's, I think ultimately it's taught me a lot about, um, the space because it's kept me engaged in the space as opposed mm-hmm. to just you know hiding my keys and forgetting mm-hmm. about it and then checking the price six months later um so it's kept me engaged it's helped me network um and build relationships like the one that we have mm-hmm. and and other relationships that i have and and ultimately for me my involvement in the crypto space has the potential for anything other than just you know my specific investment in in bitcoin but um, the pe- potential to, to work with companies in the crypto space as they become um, bigger and have marketing needs or or want to be involved and have you know advisors or whatever yep. maybe in their companies. And, and so when you first saw mining, like what, what caught your attention about it, right? Because it's not like um, probably anything else that, uh, that that you've seen, and and also uh, it takes a little bit more sophistication to like buy the hardware mm-hmm. how do i actually set this up how do i uh, monitor it or, or kind of you know make sure that it's working correctly um that's not like hey i just signed up for a coinbase account and i just you know let it let a market right. order rip um and just bought some bitcoin yeah so what was the, kind of the thing that drew you into the mining side and then um you know did you have technical background in, in terms of understanding some stuff or did you have to really go kind of learn how to how to set it up um, I'm not. I'm. I didn't have a t- ton of technical background. I'm not a total computer nerd. Although in high school, um, I was a teacher's assistant um, to the IT director at my high school, and one of the jobs that I did for most of the time that I was a TA was um, help set up the networks at our ah. uh, at our school. <laughs> so, um, as a you know, for a teenager uh, having a very basic understanding mm-hmm. of of how computers are connected and how they operate. Um, on a network, I've, I've had a like a very surface level mm-hmm. understanding, um, but I think the reason that I was attracted to mining was because it seemed it seemed tangible and mechanical to me in a way that I understand how mm-hmm. things work. It seemed like it was something that I could understand how it worked, even though computers can be confusing um, and networks can be confusing. The operations of of um, computer performance and mm-hmm. power usage, um, and the the fluctuation of price and um, and the flow of of production that that seemed very that, I don't know it seemed like I could identify with that and mm-hmm. it, and also I seemed like to me Bitcoin mining 
uh, was a it's a blue collar gig, mm-hmm. you know, and and in a lot of ways, and um, I kind of identify with that too. So um, I felt like that was something where I was I could be involved in that, and that could be where I get. Um, like I said, I it, I'm hooked into the space, but I'm not necessarily over my head. Yeah, for sure. And so um, as you look at it in terms of the uh, the intersection of um, racing and, and crypto, there's obviously the sponsorship angle, right? Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of crypto companies that would love to sponsor uh, either race cars or mm-hmm. drivers or, or whatever. Um, are there other elements of either things that uh, NASCAR is doing today uh, or things you can do in the future where you see some sort of intersection with uh, the currencies or applications of blockchain technology? Uh, or do you think it's more of, yeah, it's probably going to stick in the sponsorship area for a while and then maybe down the road that could happen, but probably not likely in the short term? Um, I mean, yeah, so obviously right now sponsorship is a, is a perfect avenue for that. And that's, you know, no different than it's a great idea for, um, for crypto companies to be involved in any sports league or any influencer. Mm-hmm. You know, NASCAR, from a sponsorship perspective, I will say that I feel like NASCAR shares a lot of the same core values that people in the cryptocurrency world share. So as these, as these crypto companies mature to the point that they're ready to market to the masses, I think that our demographic is a very similar demographic as far as, like I said, the sort of financial sovereignty and mm-hmm. the, the, just the, the, the belief system. So um, that's why my network in, in the crypto space is, is important to me because I think that the opportunity will present itself eventually. Um, as far as an actual use case in our sport, I've, I've had, my mind has gone a different, million different directions and, and really I, I would love to feel the ideas from anybody that sees opportunities. Mm-hmm. You and I have had a lot of conversations that, um, you know, f- one example could be the fractional ownership side of things. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily have to be limited to just a driver, right? Mm-hmm. In a driver contract, we've talked about basketball players mm-hmm. um, that, that or what's the name of the basketball? Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie. That's right, Spencer Dinwiddie. I mean, he's his attempt at, at tokenizing his contract, um, it sounds, genius and it sounds um you know groundbreaking but it's really just another version of what a lot of people are already doing behind the scenes yep you know um golfers have staked themselves with investors race car drivers have staked themselves with investors there's i I think that blockchain provides a uh, just a technology that can more cleanly and 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 uh more cleanly define what those investments look like but then also open it up to a mass audience. So mm-hmm. I think you could see race car drivers doing that. I think that you could also see race teams doing something like that. So in NASCAR, I mean, obviously we would have to have permission from the sanctioning body mm-hmm. because the sanctioning body needs to know who owns what, mm-hmm. but we are not a totally a franchise business like the yep. NFL or NBA. I mean, the race, the drivers are still independent contractors. There's no union. The race teams ultimately are, are employers. Yeah. In, yeah. Employers and independent organizations. So, um, there's a lot of assets in the racing industry mm-hmm. that can be um, tokenized, if that's a yeah. fair thing to say. Well, right well and I think it, to me, it's, hey, you could tokenize the contracts of the drivers, mm-hmm. right? You could tokenize the ownership of the teams. Yep. Um, yeah, there's even things that you can do around, sim- similar how people are doing like uh, supply chain, logistics, yep. etc. Yep. You can do it yep. with the parts. And I think, you know, so we have, and, and this is NASCAR is not totally unique, but we're... Um, you know, we're an ecosystem that does business with itself, mm-hmm. right? And in a lot of different ways. So there's a lot of money that is in NASCAR that stays in NASCAR that's totally endemic to NASCAR, right? Mm-hmm. You have money changing hands from NASCAR to the team owners, mm-hmm. going from the team owners to the drivers, going back into NASCAR, you know, from the you know, money coming from the race fans, let's say that's money outside of NASCAR going into the racetracks and the racetracks, you know, that, that money going to NASCAR in different forms. So there's even... I mean, there's there's tons of opportunity for payment systems. I was right, just going to say that's up. the holy grail is to get NASCAR to accept Bitcoin. Yeah, well, I mean, and I don't. I, it, that's not. I mean, you, you talk about like Litecoin and Align payment systems and what they're doing with the Miami Dolphins and um, you know all the different services out there that that have had, over the last few years have really figured out a. Uh, uh, efficient ways to sell uh, to to settle payments in cryptocurrency. I give me a call and I'll take you straight to mm-hmm. the people in NASCAR that that can make those decisions because yep. 
um, that's not unrealistic at all, mm-hmm. you know, but taking it a step further, I don't think, I don't see why, you know, a, a an industry like NASCAR couldn't have a native payment system, mm-hmm. you know, or a native, um, currency of its fan loyalty yep. all, all yep. that kind of stuff for sure um all right before uh, before we finish up i want to ask you uh, <clears throat> what i think of as frequently asked questions that i've always had in my head for nascar for drivers. sure uh, where do i do when i have to go pee uh, uh, that, that's actually <laughs> one of the questions um <laughs> uh, and, and so uh, just so people at home know uh we did not prepare this he has no clue any of the questions oh, i'm going to ask him <laughs> um but the the first question is uh what do you do when you got, when you're racing? Right. You got to pee. I'm I always sure turn that like... one around. I'm gonna make this one quick. Okay. I, I'm gonna turn that one around on you. Um, Pomp Global, <laughs> new sponsor of mine, funding Morgan Creek Digital is on the hood of the car. It's a multi-million dollar investment. Yep. We're we're uh, we're in the top ten of the Daytona 500, and there's there's 20 laps to go in the race. You're on the edge of your seat on my pit box, and I come over the radio and I say that I have to go pee. Yep, not happening. What do you want me to do? <laughs> Keep driving, man. There you go. <laughs> Pee in your pants. Yep, and, and that's just it. You got so it. There's no special systems. There's no anything. <laughs> no, nothing it's fancy. It. Now, I will tell you that I have only I have only had to pee my pants in a race car one time. So. Once ever? Yeah. Wow. Yep. You've been so, in a lot of race cars. Yeah, so the races are four hours. You know, if you're smart, you can hold it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, <clears throat> and really, my thought process there is... Uh, as uh, well, don't okay. overthink it. So, se- se- well, well, second, second question, and then we'll go back to the first okay. question: Is uh, are race drivers professional athletes? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I tend to think that actually people don't understand how difficult it is, both from a, a physical exertion standpoint and, and the yeah. toll your body takes, um, and then also uh, the sitting there um, going you know 200 miles an hour right. holding the steering wheel yeah like holding a car yeah I mean you're holding a 3,000 pound car and um, I mean so I wear a heart rate monitor in the car um, I track my biometrics and um, my what, one of my hobbies so my hobbies outside of racing are endurance sports but it's not just a hobby because I feel like it, it, it helps. helps my sport you know it's it's an investment that I make in in my craft um, to compete in endurance sports and my heart rate in a four-hour NASCAR race is actually, you could almost overlay it on my heart rate on a four-hour half Ironman triathlon. Wow. So it's a very, and, and it's kind of the same to uh, a marathon. It's very mm-hmm. close to a marathon heart rate um, over a four-hour marathon. That's so, crazy. Yeah, so it's, um, um, I think I posted on social media one, one of the, the hotter races uh, we had this summer, my average heart rate was like 145 for a three-hour race. Holy shit. Yep. So the reason why I ask that is, uh, as an athlete, mm-hmm. you've got to stay uh, hydrated. Yep. So you're drinking a bunch of fluids. Yep. And uh, anyone who's played sports before, finding the balance between staying hydrated and not having to pee all the time yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Is, a, is a balance. Um, so it, we lose about 15 pounds of fluids in a race. Um, I'm able typically on a on a race where I'm going to lose that many fluids. I'm able to replace about 120 ounces okay. in, the, in the car. Got it. Um, I don't dr- I don't drink while I'm racing, but when there's breaks, when there's caution periods, um, I'll suck down a 20 24 ounce bottle like it's nothing, and I usually drink about you know five or six of those in a race. Okay. So uh, next question: Do you bring your cell phone in the car during the race? <laughs> Not allowed to. Not allowed to. Yeah. Okay. So there's yeah. no texting and driving yeah. during yeah. the race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cell phones have accelerometers in them, and we're not allowed to have accelerometers in the in the car. Well, why not? Uh, NASCAR has limitations on on the data that you're allowed to collect in the car on a race weekend. So Got in it. testing environments, um, it's pretty much wide open. Our cars are mm-hmm. outfitted with hundreds of thousands of dollars of instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on a race weekend, it's there's a lot of data collection in our car, mm-hmm. but it's all sort of funneled through NASCAR. Got it. Yeah. What what is um, what do you bring in the car with you for the race? So obviously you bring some fluids. Are there mm-hmm. other things that you bring that maybe people wouldn't think about? Um, or is it just pretty much fluid and then you get in, in your fire retardant suit no, I have a, let's I, get racing? Yeah, I mean, I my fire suit, uh, shoes, gloves, helmet, head and neck restraints. Uh, I have a... Uh, a carbon fiber bottle cage like you'd have on your bike if you're a road cyclist or something like that and um and i drink out of um a 24 ounce bottle and i I do that instead of a camel back or like a mechanical system um or um because i like to keep track of how much i'm drinking Mm -hmm. so i have that right by the window of my car when i come in for a pit stop 
there's a um, in a pit stop you see the guys that run around the car there's one guy that's actually dedicated to the driver mm -hmm. his job is to um, get me whatever I need so if I wanted a peanut butter and jelly sandwich I'd ask him for one mm -hmm. um, but I have him put uh, my drink mix in there and Got then it. he'll pull a tear off off the windshield to clean to give me a fresh windshield very cool um, what's the scariest situation you've ever been in racing um, it's, uh, usually I don't typically get scared in behind the wheel. Um, I'm pretty used to it, uh, to the, to the fear factor of it all. Mm. Um, but usually the, the couple tenths of a second between, uh, when your tire blows out and you're headed straight to the wall is the scariest. Um, Have you had that happen? Yeah. I had it happen a couple months ago. I blew a tire at Indianapolis motor speedway and, and hit the wall, um, at about 160 miles an hour. Holy <laughs> and, shit. um, yeah, it was a pretty bad wreck, and it was a it was like a thirty five G hit. So um, if you could imagine a hundred and sixty pound body turning into a, you know, multiply that by thirty five. Yeah, um, that's how much of a hammer that my body was going into the wall. Dang, not didn't it didn't feel good. I was I was sore for a while. Did, like like what when you got out of the car was it something where you were like hey I got pretty messed up there or yeah or I mean it well so you go to the infield care center you see the doctors um, I have to take a concussion test mm -hmm. uh, fortunately I did not have a concussion uh, but my I, ha I had a lot of bruising on my body um, I had some some rashes from like where the seat belts. Mm -hmm. Um, you could, if you know, our, I, I wear what's called a nine point harness. Mm -hmm. So there's nine points of anchoring, mm -hmm. um, on my seatbelts. Uh, you could see the outline on my body in bruising where my seatbelts are, where yeah. they line up. on. So me. it kind of did its job though. It did its job for sure. Um, but I was very sore. <laughs> I see, um, excuse me. I see a, a physical therapist every Monday after a race, whether I need it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, 7am every, every Monday. And um, we just go through my body and my mobility, and, and that's kind of what kicks me off for my training week, um, so that I'm in, so that I'm ready to train. Um, after a wreck like that, I was saw my physical therapist every day that week, and I didn't train at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's you're talking about Epsom salt baths and recovery yeah, for sure. Uh, is rubbing racing? Rubbing is definitely racing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what what is the, um, the the culture within drivers around this, right? Because I think uh, most people they don't uh, they don't get to see kind of the the driver's perspective. And yeah. So um, it looks like there's a lot of jockeying and there's a lot of intentional kind of rubbing or bumping. Yeah. Or NASCAR whatever. is a very physical sport when it comes to the cars and drivers. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like for the most part, you know, we get along as drivers off the track. We're pretty intense with each other on the track. There's a lot of mutual respect um especially at the top level in the cup series the drivers have a lot of respect for each other but we race each other really really hard mm -hmm. and um we have a lot of different ways that we communicate with each other on the racetrack mm -hmm. based on how you race the other drivers you can it, it's there's a way to send messages and a way to um like what give me some um, examples well the mo one of the most useful tools to send a message to another driver is to stick your middle finger out the window <laughs> <laughs> so the bird really said the bird goes a long ways and it can it, it can say a lot of things um and and really the um that is amazing the, the vigor in which you that you send the bird uh -huh. um can send a lot of messages too you know are you shaking your hand is it a soft bird do you just um and I i'm not joking that. yeah oh i'm sure <laughs> there's a but also i mean you use your car i mean it, it's it's when the caution comes out coming pulling up alongside of somebody and and bumping them uh you know can send the message that that you didn't like what they did mm -hmm. um you know sometimes drivers will, will pull up to you and they'll try to cut your tire uh i mean it's they you know our cars have sharp edges on them and they want to rub against you and they might cut your tire they might you know rub rub on your car and put some damage on your car that can hurt your performance mm -hmm. um if they don't like what you did i mean that's 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 the gritty part yeah. of NASCAR racing. That's an elite level. To, to use the car to pop your tire yeah. is an elite <laughs> level of being able to drive going, you know, even yeah. 50 miles an hour, let alone yeah. 200. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, um, I've gotten, I'm not someone that likes to wreck other people because mm -hmm. I don't want to get wrecked, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there's, that's, that's when true. You're, that's true. Crypto trading as well. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and so, you, you know, when you're, uh, when you're, when you're in a tickle fight with another driver, I mean, 
um, the best way to get your shit piled up is to just start wrecking people. Mm-hmm. But um, sometimes, you know, for me, the best way to send the message or at least get what I wanted to get out of it is just put damage on their car. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to wreck you, but I'll damage your car. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's going to screw up your performance. Your team is not going to like it. Your car owner is going to cost him money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, hey, if you're going to screw with me, I'll just damage your car. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's ways that you can do it without hurting your own car. And that's... Uh, that's there's that's one of the ways I guess that drivers communicate with each other. Yeah. But the bird is always a good place to start. D- don't uh, don't tell anybody how to do it. We don't need it on the LA freeway anyone doing <laughs> yeah, anything crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what's the uh, last question, and then uh, we'll talk about some aliens. But uh, <laughs> what um what's the craziest thing you've done to train for driving? Man, I mean, it, it's. I have spent hours and hours behind the wheel of race cars and, and in the simulator, um, you know, our simulation tools are actually not necessarily driver training tools Mm -hmm. as they are engineering tools. Mm -hmm. But, um, when I worked for Hendrick Motorsports, I mean, I've been in the car for six, seven hours straight without getting out, you know, because, because we were at a test and we had a test plan and we had to get everything done Mm -hmm. and we were beating the daylight and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are those are the tests where you're just you have to you you're putting your life on the line, lap after lap after lap. You have a you know several hundred thousand dollar race car with that much more money invested in the instruments that are on it, mm-hmm. and you're driving it at 200 miles an hour, and you have to to do that all day long, and and it's all for the greater good of building faster race cars. So I love it. I, the fans I feel love like, it. Yeah, I feel like just the business itself is the craziest thing you could mm-hmm. do. I mean, I've been grinding at this for a long, long time. For sure. Um, before you get asked me a question, aliens, real or not? Um, I think I probably listened to the Joe Rogan experience too much to uh, to not believe in aliens. So, I, yeah, I think aliens are real or I think there's something. I think there's something living out there. Um, do you think they've ever been to Earth? There's, any, but there's Man, been contact? I don't know. You know, I think that uh, in, in my capitalist belief um, and and the, uh, the um, maybe not capital, maybe that's the wrong word to use. What am I trying to say? What are we as human? What, what, what like sentient think? beings. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. Or that, definitely capitalists, too. Yeah, we're definitely capitalists. <laughs> I, I guess that, like, uh, in, in the way like that intelligent life form. In, in, our, in our nature as humans, it's, it's hard not to think. You know, it's hard hard not to think that if aliens were here for me, that that they would have taken us over if they were more powerful mm-hmm. than us, mm-hmm. right? So, I, I just I don't know. I have a hard time believing that there's aliens out there that are just watching us and yeah. you know, <laughs> the feeling like if they had the technology to know about us and we didn't know about them, then we probably wouldn't be in existence well, right I, now. I feel like they might just be watching, like, look at these idiots, <laughs> right? So I, <laughs> I think all this dumb stuff they're doing. I can see that like maybe there's there's life forms out there that we're more advanced than. That we just haven't found yet, and yeah. they haven't found us. If they were watching, they'd be like, "Look at this!" Every Sunday, they show up and they just drive around yeah. in a circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Awesome, man. Well, to finish up, what uh, one question do you have for me? Um, one question that I have for you. Oh my gosh, how? I mean, how long is this journey for you? How long is this this crypto journey? Oh, people, people already like, know. Are, uh, you, are you a crypto lifer? Is there an exit someday? Is there a... <laughs> yeah, look. Uh, so there's two separate things. One is um, the technology, the assets, etc. And then the other is like what I always call like the media stuff. So there's yeah. Twitter, writing every day, the podcast. Uh, on the media side, one day I'm going to wake up and I'm just going to say... It was a fun ride, but yeah. I'll see you guys later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could see and that. And you may never hear from me yeah. again. Um, what are you reading right now? Reading? Um, I'm actually reading Edward Snowden's uh, Permanent Record. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so that one's pretty good. Uh, I just finished recently um, Steve Schwartzman. Uh, I think Whatever It Takes is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pretty good. But uh, to me, it's just the, the media stuff is uh, it's fun and, and it's a way to kind of collect thoughts, talk mm-hmm. to people, all yep. stuff. But uh, it, it can be draining. And uh, at some point, I think I'll just be like, all right, see ya. Yep. Um, and, and it'll free up a lot of time, right? It'll allow me to go read more. It'll allow me to yep. kind of do other things. But uh, but for right now, I'm having fun. So uh, we'll keep with that. And then on the investing side, I, I, I don't think that I could uh, ever walk away. So we'll, uh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see what happens there. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Awesome, man. All right, well, I appreciate you doing this. Where can people find, uh, find you online? 
online or, or find out more information if they want to get in contact with you? I'm on Twitter, Landon Castle, at Landon Castle, L-A-N-D-O-N-C-A-S-S-I-L-L, and my DMs are open. So that, that, That's like a Mississippi when you're a little kid and you learn how to yeah, say M-I-S-S-I-L-L. Yeah, and I'm on Instagram as well, So, but Crypto Twitter can find me on Twitter. All right, man. I appreciate you doing this. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.